We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 10 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I will tell you exactly what page you can find it on. Page 332. Thank you. 332 on the Blue Pew Bible. This morning's passage, before we dive into it, actually raises a question that I would bet has at least floated through your mind before. And it's this. Why isn't the Bible in chronological order? Why isn't the Bible just from start to finish, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, in historical order of how the events actually took place? I mean, isn't that how you would have written it? Doesn't that make logical sense? And this morning, as we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 10, astute listeners will recognize that what's taking place in this chapter actually is the same events that took place back in chapter 8. The same battles being recounted, the same opponents We're just receiving the story from a different angle this time. Why would you insert chapter 9 between chapters 8 and 10? Why not chapter 8, chapter 10, then chapter 9 in the order that they took place? Well, the reason why is because sometimes a story told out of order is actually more true. For instance, you flip on your TV, you would be hard-pressed to find a television show that was shot from a single camera, one take, for the entire 30 or 45-minute program. Without any breaks, without any extra angles, no. When you watch a show, we take this for granted as a part of storytelling via cinema that you have things like separate camera angles that are all spliced together. And those shots may not have been done in sequence. We have things like flashbacks or flash forwards at various strategic points throughout the story. Sometimes you may even have a repeated scene within an episode or a movie. Even reality television is broken up with anachronistic Uh, interviews that are done after the show has been filmed that they then splice back into the show. These are not violations of storytelling. These are the very elements of telling a good story. And what we have to realize is that when a producer chooses to tell a story out of order, or when a narrator decides to recount the events of a story out of the order that they historically took place, Guess what? He has a reason for it. There's a reason why. Somehow telling the story, chapters 8, 9, and 10, in the order that they're in, actually reveals the truth better than if they had been told 8, 10, 9. This morning, chapters 8, 9, and 10, I like to call this a Bible sandwich. That's when you put something on either sides. You have three elements, and the two outside elements are the same. 
or is similar to one another, and the thing in the middle is different, like two pieces of bread, you know, with meat in the middle. And the whole point of forming a Bible sandwich is because when you put the two pieces of bread on the outside, it helps to illuminate and help you to better understand the thing that's sandwiched in between. So the author of 2 Samuel has taken King David's wrath against his enemies and put it in chapter 8. And then this morning we're going to see he puts it also in chapter 10. But in between he puts chapter 9, the encounter between Mephibosheth and King David. What's going on here? We better understand the mercy, the mercy of the king. Whenever we find it sandwiched between the king's wrath against his enemies. The darkness of the wrath before and behind chapter 9, which we heard last week, helps to better illuminate the extraordinary nature of King David's love for Mephibosheth. So last week, if you left and you were sort of on the fence, I'm not sure whether I want to receive Jesus. I'm just not sure if his mercy and his kindness and his love are really meriting me laying down my life and bowing before him and giving myself to him forever. This morning, we're going to finish that sandwich and the point of reminding us of the king's wrath is to illuminate what we heard last week. We ought to follow Mephibosheth's example and fall on our faces and give ourselves completely to the king. Don't be a fool. Surrender to the king. So if you found 2 Samuel chapter 10, why don't we stand together as we read this morning. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think... Because David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father? Has not David sent his spies to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So, Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half of the beard of their beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tov, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men, and the Ammonites came out and drew up the battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob, the men of Tov and Makkah, were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. 
The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadad Ezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. And they came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadad Ezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Assyrians the men uh, of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. When all the kings who were the servants of Hadad Ezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid save the Ammonites anymore. So ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. If you were here last week, perhaps you noticed the echoes, the similarities with the way that chapter 10 starts and the way that chapter 9 starts. Both chapters begin with David's desire to show covenant faithfulness to a son for the sake of his father. So last week David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? This morning in chapter 10, verse 2, we begin with a very similar inquiry on David's part. David said, I will deal loyally, literally do covenant kindness with Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father did covenant kindness with me. Then we see both in chapters 9 and 10, David sends messengers. In both chapters, David sends comfort to these two young men. However, that's where we have a turn in the road. Mephibosheth receives the mercy and the comfort of King David and becomes an eternal prince of the kingdom. This morning, Hanan rejects the mercy of the king and is destroyed. What we're seeing this morning in chapter 10 is that Hanan and Mephibosheth have been juxtaposed. They've been placed right next to each other because they present us with our only two alternatives in this life. Either you can be wise and humble yourself and receive the mercy of the king. Or you can be a fool. Reject the mercy of the king and be destroyed. Hanan this morning is further proof, further persuasion, further pleading that you would receive the unconditional, 
undeserved, unfailing, eternal mercy of Jesus Christ. We've got the positive example in chapter 9. Won't you be like Mephibosheth? But then this morning we have the negative side. Don't be like Haman. If you're taking notes this morning, we have three basic points to the story. Do not mock his mercy. Number one, do not mock his mercy. Secondly, we see a negative example from Hanan. Do not double down. But rather, thirdly, be of good courage. Those are our points this morning. Do not mock his mercy. Do not double down. But rather, be of good courage. As I said, chapters 9 and 10 start in the same ways. In fact, the verbs that are used are meant to mimic one another. So we think we're headed down the same road here, but then things take a turn for the worse there in verse 3 when the king's advisors gather around him. Verse 3 reads, But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you for this very reason, to search out the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? These princes turn all of David's intentions on their head. Oh, you think David's sending comfort? You should be afraid. Oh, you think David is trying to honor you? No, 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 no. He's trying to humiliate you, and he sees a power vacuum now that your dad is gone. Oh, David has sent you servants to comfort you? No, here's what you should do with those servants, those comforters. Verse 4. So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Verse 5, when it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Just imagine for a minute that you are going to a funeral visitation, let's say, over at McSwain Evans. This is not an endorsement of one funeral home over another. I've just done my most recent funeral with, uh, with Pete and Greg over there. So let's just pretend you're going on a visitation. And it's a family that you've known for a long time, and you go there, and you enter into the room where everyone's sort of mulling around, and you get in line to offer your condolences. And all of a sudden, Pete comes up and he lays his hands on your shoulders and he drags you out into the parking lot. And everyone else, the whole family, and all the people who are there to console them, they go out into the parking lot as well. And you hear this thing fire up. And they shave off half your hair in front of everyone out there. And then they pull your pants down, throw them in the garbage, and make you walk all the way across town back to your house. That's what, that's what they did this morning in this passage. That's the exact treatment that David's messengers receive. We see the heart of David going out to a young man who's just lost his father. David is sending mercy to this young man. But the truth of the matter, what we see this morning, is that just because David had a relationship with this young man's father... 
He sends an envoy of servants, and they bring flowers, and they bring a memorial, maybe, and a sympathy card, you know, love, David, we're, our condolences to you. Hanan intentionally humiliates his servants. This is a pointed taunt. This is a message that he is sending back to David, his own messengers being sent back, half their beard shaved off, shaved off their hineys showing to everyone. This is what I think of you, David. So friends, let us learn from the example of Hanan this morning. Let us learn not to mock his mercy. Do not mock his mercy. We can look at the mercy of the king from two different perspectives this morning. The first is this. If you think that because your parents went to church all their lives, if you think that because your family had you sprinkled as an infant, if you think that because you were raised in a God-fearing family, if you think that because your mom and your dad loved Jesus with all of your hearts, if you think that because of all of those things, somehow you and Jesus are good, you don't know the truth. However, if you think that because you grew up in a home with a violent father, one who got drunk every night, if you think that because you grew up in a home where the only time you heard the name Jesus Christ was when it was being used as a swear word, if you think that because you grew up in a home where your parents hated God and mocked people who went to church, if you think that because of those things somehow you are forever cursed, well, you couldn't be further from the truth either. This is the point of 2 Samuel chapter 9 and 2 Samuel chapter 10. 2 Samuel chapter 9 is not about Grandpa Saul. It's about Mephibosheth. 2 Samuel chapter 10 is not about Father Nahash. It's about Hanan. When it comes to your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it has nothing to do with your grandfather or your mom or your dad and their relationship with Jesus, good or bad. It's about you. You and Jesus. Enough about your father. Enough about your grandfather or your mom. Jesus looks at each and every one of us and says, but who do you say that I am? In that moment of honesty, when we look Jesus in the face, there is no polite way to refuse the comfort of Christ and say, Jesus, thanks but no thanks. The mercy of Christ Jesus comes as a comfort even to his enemies, but the enemies of Jesus Christ make a grave mistake when they mistake his kindness for weakness. We are all either Mephibosheth or Hanan. There is no third option. Either we fall on our faces 
receiving unbelievable, inconceivable mercy from the king. Or we mock his mercy and we send it back with its pants pulled down. And we say, what are you going to do about that, Jesus? Those are the only two options. Hanan could not have committed a greater offense against King David. This is like fraternity prank level of creativity here. Shaving off half the beard, cutting their clothes in half above the waist so they have to run home naked. There is no more humiliating act Hanan could have dreamed up to do against David. David sends his mercy to this young man and instead he mocks it. This is the moment, friend, where you have to realize, but you have done so much worse. You didn't just shave off half the beard of a servant of Jesus. You, with your own fist, plucked out the beard of the king himself. You didn't just pull the pants down of some of the king's servants and run off laughing. You stripped naked the king and then hung him on a cross to be humiliated and to suffocate before the eyes of everyone while you hurled insult and mock and jeer upon him to his very last breath. Mock his mercy. Friends, we have all, every single one of us, done it. And yet, his mercy is more. There is forgiveness yet. Do not, do not mock his mercy. He will forgive everything if you will repent and believe. Well, verse 6 tells us that Hanan realized pretty quick that he had stepped in some pretty deep stuff. Maybe it wasn't such a good idea to take the advice of his idiot frat brothers. That the prank he had just committed was going to have some very serious consequences. And of course, when Hanan comes to his senses, of course, he makes the humiliating journey to Jerusalem and falls on his face and begs and pleads for forgiveness and says, I was wrong to mock your mercy. Will you please forgive me? Can you find it in your heart, David, to forgive me? He does all of that, right? No. He does what we all do when we realize that we are wrong. He doubles down. Secondly, Hanan's example shows us, brothers and sisters, do not double down. Look at verse 6. And the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David. The Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. When Hanan realizes how he has mocked the mercy of the king, he doesn't humble himself. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He marshals more troops. He hires backup. He doubles down. Kids, let me give you an example of what's going on here, okay? So let's say you're with your brothers, your sisters, and you hit your brother. You hit your brother, and you're, you're, you, they're crying, and now mom comes in, and she says, did you hit your brother? And what do you do in that moment? 
you say, no, mom, I didn't hit my brother, right? Yeah. So you started out with one sin, which was allowing anger to take control of your heart and you harm your brother. But now you end up with how many sins? You've doubled down because now not only have you hit your brother, you've lied to your mom. Never. We never lie. Right, Teddy? Yeah. This is the temptation, though. And it doesn't, just have, it doesn't just happen to children. Husbands, I'm sure you've never found yourself in this place. But let's say, hypothetically, you forgot to, to do some chore or run some errand that your wife specifically asked you to do. And you get home, and she's upset with you, and you say to her, but you never told me. And she insists, but yes, I did tell you. In fact, I left you a post-it note reminding you this morning to do this before you came home. And you say, no, that's not true. And I don't understand why you're so angry with me. And you go back into your bedroom, and as you're taking off your jacket, you put your hand into the coat pocket, and you hear a crinkling sound. And you reach in and pull out the post-it note that she did, in fact, leave for you, that you forgot was in your pocket because the day just got busy. And so, of course, you go back into the kitchen and you apologize for having fought with her. No, you don't. You throw the post-it note in the trash. You hide the evidence. You double down. That's right, Teddy. Brothers and sisters, the encouragement of this passage is not to do that. Do not double down. The Bible phrase for doubling down is hardening your heart. It doesn't sound so funny whenever you put it that way. There's no more supreme example of someone hardening their heart than Pharaoh in Egypt. Nine times God gave him an opportunity to repent. And every time we're told, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. He doubled, he tripled, he quadrupled down. Friends, in the end, the Lord got what he wanted from Pharaoh. Whether Pharaoh wanted to be hard-hearted about it or not. How foolish does Hanan have to be to think that he will mit will withstand David no matter how many troops he marshals. Because who is standing on David's side? The Lord. You know, the irony of this whole situation is that Hanan's name means graced one. Graced one. This morning, Hanan learns the terrible truth about God's irresistible grace. John Darby writes, when grace is despised by those to whom it is manifested, the king's judgment follows. Opposition and rebellion only serve to establish his authority in the very place where resistance is attempted. It is useless to strive against the power of God's chosen king. How foolish of us to think that doubling down will even work. I would encourage you, if you are trying to decide this morning whether to become a devoted follower of Jesus, am I going to surrender my life? Am I going to be baptized and live for him forever? 
the author of Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. We hear his voice in the words of scripture. And at first it brings fear because it accuses us. It accuses us of breaking God's law, of mocking his mercy. And when the guilt and the shame and that sense of panic begins to settle into our hearts, instead of admitting the truth, instead of confessing our sins, instead of falling on our face, begging and pleading with him, if he can find any place in his heart to forgive us, we double down. We marshal all of our excuses and reasons why, no, 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 no I'm not a sinner, I, I haven't broken God's law, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm not as bad as the law says I am, I don't deserve eternal hell for what I've done, and I'm certainly not going to bow before Jesus. Friend, surrender today. Do not double down. The sad thing is Hanan isn't the only one who did this in this passage. He's the first one, but he sets an example for the rest. He hires the Syrians. He arrays them in the open field. He arrays his men. Hmm, I wonder why. Uh, outside the gate of the city, in case the things go south, he and his men can run into the city and hide like cowards while he leaves his hired army out in the open field to fend for themselves. But what about the hired Syrians? The only reason why they're there fighting David's army is because Hanan paid them to. But verse 15 tells us, When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. Why are the Syrians fighting David? They don't even know at this point. The guy who paid them to come fight is hiding inside the city. He has forfeited. We don't know why we're fighting, but we're going to win. The Syrians take their turn to double down, and this isn't even their war. The Syrians, who had no beef with David, now have turned it into a double quarter pounder cheeseburger. They go and they muster more troops. They go get more of their friends to come fight against David. And if all of this sounds a lot like the last argument that you had with your husband or your wife, or your coworker, or your brother, that's because doubling down is something we sinners love to do. We will fight for a cause. We will fight without a cause. We will fight long after we have forgotten whatever cause it was. Against our spouses, our parents, against our brothers and sisters, against fellow church members, against coworkers, against people we have never met on Facebook and against God himself. About what? Oh, we don't know. But we're going to win. No. No, you're not. We see this over and over again in the history of God's people. God sends them a prophet, calling them to repent. I'm not going to listen to this guy. They double down. He sends another prophet. No, he doesn't know what he's talking about. They double down. 
They become more brazen. They begin to abuse, persecute these men who are coming and simply speaking on behalf of the Lord. Turn away from your sins. Come back to the Lord. Can you not see how wrong you are? And finally, God sent his son to them saying, they surely will respect my son. But when they saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. No surrender. No surrender. Those are the words of someone who loves to double down. Such a contrast to the words that we heard coming out of the mouth of Mephibosheth last week, aren't they? What is your servant that you should show regard to a dead dog such as I? Are you Hanan this morning or are you Mephibosheth? You will leave these doors as one or the other. So don't be a fool like Hanan. Don't mock the mercy of the king. Do not double down. This morning, may we leave with this encouragement. Be of good courage. Now, if you've been with us for any stretch of the book of First or Second Samuel, you know that Joab is not the upstanding, shining hero of a man that he ought to be. But the truth of the matter is, we hear some pretty good advice from him this morning and encouragement from his lips in verse 12. He says to his brother, be of good courage. And let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Where does Joab's confidence lie as he marches into the battlefield, as he sees enemies on either side? What gives him courage? What, what gives him the audacity to say to his brother, we can have good hope as we step onto this battlefield? Well, because Joab hopes that the Lord has his back. Even though there are enemies pressing from both sides, he has hope that the Lord will vindicate his people. Joab and his men are fighting for God's king. Fighting, he says, for God's people. Fighting for God's land. And Joab hopes that the Lord will have their back. Friends, although Joab is seeking to inspire courage in his brothers and sisters, well, his brothers, this morning, our brothers and sisters, he doesn't know how the battle's going to turn out, but we do. We know how this story ends, and we know how the story of God's history ends as well. David and his armies cross the Jordan, trounce all the enemies, and those enemies never raise their heads ever again so long as David lives. Friends, if you belong to King Jesus this morning... You can be of good courage. Romans 10, 11 reminds us, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Or what about these words from Luke 12? Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You go be faithful in the battle. Trust that God's will is for your good and that your king has your back. When the world abuses the messengers of Jesus Christ, which is who we are, Paul says, we are the ambassadors of Christ. 
when they humiliate, mock, mistreat us for belonging to Jesus. We can trust that our king does not take lightly when his messengers are harassed or embarrassed or humiliated or worse. Paul comforts the Thessalonians. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the church of God for your steadfastness and faith in all persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. You have enemies on either side and yet you continue to be of good courage. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you are afflicted as well. Let us be of good courage. Jesus Christ has crossed the Jordan. He has marched into Jerusalem. He has conquered and has his foot forever on the heads of our enemies, sin and death. And we don't enter this battle unsure of what the Lord's will is or what the outcome will be. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. So let us of good courage. Do not mock his mercy. Do not double down. Be of good courage, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the great confidence that we can have in you. You have extended your mercy and grace to us, not because we are deserving of it, but because you are compassionate, a compassionate and merciful God. And so I pray that every person here would receive your mercy, not mock you. I pray especially for the children here who may feel like they are waffling or on the fence, not sure, are you worthy of their life? I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would win them by your grace and your mercy, that they would belong to you forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.